I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. No-tiller Rick Clark has had good success transitioning his 7,000-acre Williamsport, Indiana farm to organic production. But it hasn't come easy, and there have been a lot of lessons along the way. From being what he calls one of the worst destructors of the soil in his county, to his current role of a highly accomplished and respected regenerative farmer, Rick has tackled each challenge with purpose and commitment. For this No-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Rick to hear about many of the ways his operation and mindset have had to change in order to succeed with the transition. He explains his 70-30 theory on weed suppression, how learning to crimp cereal rye was a light bulb moment that really pushed his practices forward, and how he came to appreciate beneficial predator insects. He also discusses how a personal health issue has helped him develop his thinking on the intersection of soil health and human health. To kick things off, here's Rick explaining how he realized his farm had a problem that needed fixing. I consider myself fairly radical, so, but you don't have to come, you know, all the way with me, but let's, there's a lot to do on this curve somewhere. Let's just find a spot to land on there and we can do all kinds of good. Typically, I think people look at cover crops as a defensive mechanism. Okay. So it's a deep, it's, it's to cure a problem or, or help solve a problem. In our case, it was, it was erosion. And I think that's where a lot of people start the no-till cover crop practices is because of erosion. Okay. We were some of the worst destructors of the soil in the county back in the day. And, you know, we would do the deep tillage and if it didn't turn the fields black and this and the residue was gone, you did it again. Didn't matter. Didn't matter what fuel cost, didn't matter what labor costs, you just did it to, to do it. Well, one day in the spring, we'd done our usual uh, prepping of a field, you go out, we're probably a day or two too early, so you got to run shallow so you can loosen up the soil and let Mother Nature's sunlight, you know, we're talking early April here, let Mother Nature's sunlight dry things out, then you work it again a little bit deeper, and then you just let it sit. And then you're going to come back tomorrow, you're going to plant. That's kind of what you do in the spring when it's a little too wet to be out there. So that's what we did. Got a one-inch rain event that evening. All I could think about on the way to work that morning was, man, I hope we can get in the field that afternoon. I hope we can dry out enough to get in the field that afternoon. So I'm driving down the road and I see this, this stuff, something on the road. It looks, it's something dead, like a deer or something. There's something on the road. Well, as I'm getting closer, it's the field. The field had washed down and gone through the ditch and up onto the field. And that's what was lying on the road was our field. And that's when it hit me head on. And I said, it's time to make a change. So 
Now you don't have any clue what you're doing. Nothing, no clue at all. So you try to do some research online. You try and get in touch with people that are maybe doing these things already, or at least starting to do these things. And you try to gather as much information as you can. So the information that I gathered was tillage radish. Now here's the reason why tillage radish I went with because it winter kills, because I had no idea how to deal with this stuff in the spring. And it's something that I would read about that mitigates compaction, will help suppress weeds, because if it's, if it's high foliage amount, it had several bonuses, and it was a single species. That's perfect. So that fall, we already had a John Deere air seeder because we had already been no-tilling beans up to this point. We'd at least stopped that kind of tillage. We'd been no-tilling soybeans. So we had the drill in place. So we put out um, six pounds of tillage radish, which is way too much. But, you know, if, if two pounds is good, then six pounds has got to be great, right? So that's what we did. So the, all the radishes grew, we had tremendous growth, and when you know you've had good success with a radish crop is when all the neighbors are complaining about what is that stench in the air. That's when you have good radishes because all those tubers are, are now rotting and, and releasing that smell. Okay, so we go in it's, and it's perfect it, it did exactly what it was supposed to do they grew they the winter months came and they died then we came in next spring and we no-tilled corn right into that field of radish so we have the dead residue we don't have hardly any weeds and at this point we're still using synthetic uh, fertilizers and we're still using chemistry at this point so I know in my back pocket, I've got a way out if something goes south there. So we pull in and we no-till uh, the corn right into this field. And I mean, it is beautiful conditions. And as the summer goes, we do our normal thing to this field. We treat it like every other field. And at the end of the year, this particular field wound up being the highest yielding field on the farm. So now I am hooked. We needed the cover crop to be a defensive mechanism to help against erosion. And the success of that cover crop turned out to be the best yielding field on the farm that fall. So we are now, it's a win, win, win all the way around. So now that's why I want to stop right here just for a moment. It's very important in my opinion that a farmer has success on the first time they try this type of farming, the cover crop especially. Because what I'm afraid of is, if it doesn't do what they expected it to do, they're never gonna come back to it. So I had success, and that success now led to where we are today. So that was a 200 acre field. That fall, we started ordering more cover crop, got cereal rye in, and we tried to squeeze in a thousand acres that fall because I, I was waiting for the combine to roll to see what it was going to be like. After we realized how beneficial this is, that's when we started ramping up. Within four years, we had the whole farm cover crop. 
Okay, because I saw the huge benefits. Mm -hmm. So we're now into year one of, of cover crops. And I have been blessed in many ways. And one of the ways that I've been blessed is that I've met the right people at the right time. And one of these people that I want to mention that I've met at the right time is Dr. Aaron Silva from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She was having a teaching session in January in Madison. Now, Madison, Wisconsin in January is cold. <laughs> so I didn't know if I wanted to go, but, I, but when I read the headline and it said, how would you like to learn how to plant soybeans into cereal rye and roll it all down 45 days later with a roller cramper? I said, you're going to do what? I'll be there. So uh, got in the car, drove to Madison. I sat there with 35 or 40 other farmers. And Aaron taught us how to plant soybeans into cereal rye at boot stage and come back at Anthesis and roll everything down. Soybeans, uh, mature rye, everything down with, an, with a roller cramper and the beans survive. This right here was the beginning of my thought process on transitioning to organic no-till. And this is also the beginning of starting to reduce chemistry on the farm. And it's also the beginning of starting to reduce fertility on the farm. When you let the cover crops grow far into their maturity and let them do what they were planted to do, what they were intended to do, then you reap the, the huge benefits of what that cover crop can do for you. For example, cereal rye. Cereal rye is a tremendous sequester of nutrients. And when you let cereal rye go all the way to anthesis, that crop is sequestering enough nutrients to, to fulfill the needs of the cash crop that is being grown in it. So that's why we no longer apply in P or K. We have not applied P or K now for seven years. And we are now heading into year three of not applying any nitrogen. So we are trying to do um, organic no-till with cover crops. And we have just about transitioned the whole farm to organic. So as we continue down this journey, we have gone from some of the worst soil disruptors to now I can't stand it if if you, there's any tillage at all on the farm. There has to be zero tillage. Mm -hmm. Now, occasionally we need, we may tile a field with, with tile drainage and you may have to come in and smooth that field up. I understand that. But as far as tillage for a practice of the farm, that's gone. And it's now all about being uh, in a symbiotic relationship with mother nature. That's what we're trying to do. It's very difficult. Yeah. And the soybeans with Dr. Silva, it was huge. Because I, I mentioned it, it, it was the stepping stone for organic, the stepping stone for reduction of chemistry, and the stepping stone for the reduction of fertilizer. That's huge. I mean, today, Julia, right now, with the current prices, 
our farm is saving between 1.2 and 1.6 million dollars a year in input costs that's huge so often you will hear me say that i do not care about yield and now i do care about yield but yield is not what's driving this system this system is being driven by soil health and human health and that's what it's all about you know I think we've lost touch a little bit with why is there so much disease in this world today? And I think it all stems back to the health of the soil. As you increase soil health, you increase human health. I, I am a firm believer of that. We have we have 30% less nutrient density in our food today than we had 25 years ago. That, I thought we lived in the greatest nation in the world. How can that be accepted mm -hmm. to have that kind of a reduction in our nutrient load that's in the crop we're raising? Mm -hmm. Well, it attributes back to the, the soil. The soils are wore out. The tillage has wore them out. Uh, the, the synthetic fertilizers have shut all the microbial activity off. Uh, nothing, nothing is happening like it is intended to happen. There needs to be diversity cash crop rotation, and then you start to see what mother nature can do and start to bring the soil health back. I'm, I've been very blessed with everything in my life. And we're at a point where I'm, I'm trying to decide how do we get out of GMOs? It's not that I'm against GMOs, but I would like to, to get away from GMOs because I think that fulfills this systematic approach that I'm working on to work with Mother Nature, have the, the diversity, have the crop rotation, have all of these things involved. I think it also includes non-GMOs. So I'm thinking, okay, I need to get out of non-GMOs, but I don't have a market yet. So lo and behold, as I'm trying to decide what to do here, I get a knock on the door and it's a group that just came in three miles north of our headquarters and is going to build a dairy. And they want to go non-GMO. Perfect. I want to switch to non-GMO. Let's go. So that's how we reverted back from GMOs to non-GMOs. Again, that timing of being in the right place at the right time. I had the market and and everything's worked out from there. So it's very important, again, that you have success along the journey. Because if you don't, you're probably going to walk away and not come back. And it's also very important that anyone who's not tried these things, they've got to go slow. They've got to go on small acres. And they've got to look at this as a systematic approach. You know, you can't look at this as yield anymore. It's a return on your investment. You know, unfortunately, a farmer's success is based on yield. And that's that's unfortunate because there's so many other things to base your success on other than yield. I, again, I, it's not that I dislike yield, but I don't worry about yield. Yield does not drive our system here. Yield will, if you do all the things that I say to do, yield will come along. And it'll be there at the end of the day. So... It's all about applying the six principles of soil health to the fullest. The biggest challenge are going to be weeds.
Because in the old days, when we were still using cover crop, we were still had chemistry in our back pocket. We no longer have chemistry in our back pocket. And now when you sit down and you analyze our data and you look at why did that Smith 120 yield different than the Brown 80 acre field? They, they're in the same program. Everything's the same, but what, what happened here? Well, now you go back and, and you start looking at all the data you collect and you realize that the Smith 120 cover crop was planted 30 days sooner than the Brown 80 was. And Julia, I can take you to the fields and show you a 30 bushel difference in yield based on the time when that cover crop was planted in the fall. We don't realize how critical that is until you get away from chemistry because now the cover crop is what is suppressing the weeds for us. Well, if you do not have the biomass established in the spring, you're not going to, it's just going to be downhill all the way. We had a few, I do not like to talk about yield and I'm not going to talk about yield, but I'm going to tell you this. In all of the years that I've been farming on this farm, which is 38 years now, I have never seen this one particular field yield as good as it did this year. And this particular field has been in this system for eight years now. I mean, of intensive regenerative practices. It's been no-till for 15, it's been cover crop for 12, but in eight years of the stopping the tillage, stopping the chemistry, stopping everything, this field blew the doors off of any yield it's ever had in the past. So again, the cover, you look back at your notes. Now data is critical here. It's not only that we collect data, it's what do you do with that data when you've got it collected? So we collect data every single day so that at the end of the year, I can make these evaluations. Say, why did Walker West rock the, our farm this year? Why did it do what it did? And so now you start looking back. Oh, I see. I got diversity out there. I had wheat and I had soybeans and I did not roll that field with a roller crimper because my intentions were to harvest the wheat first and then come back and harvest the soybeans later. Like a relay crop, for example. But what happened was the soybeans outgrew the wheat. So when the wheat finally got mature, the beans were taller than the wheat. So I could not harvest the wheat because I would have killed the beans or at least I would have really harmed the beans. I probably wouldn't have killed them, but I would have taken a lot of foliage. So in that particular field, I decided to just do nothing and we're going to harvest the two together, which is where I think the future is headed here. I think we're going to plant multiple cash crops together and harvest them at the same time and then separate them later. Okay, so you think back now. We had wheat planted. And if you think about wheat and you think about cereal rye, wheat only gets about three feet tall and cereal rye gets about six feet tall. And we're rolling the rye down and I did not roll the wheat down. So what, what's happening here? Why is all of a sudden we've got this, this uh, synergy working that I wouldn't have thought in the forefront would work because wheat doesn't get tall enough. We didn't roll it down, but yet it was one of the cleanest fields we had in the whole fall. So now that makes me think, 
we've got to continue this and try this again in another field. So we've done that. We've got 500 acres of wheat planted. Now our intention there is to plant peas, yellow field peas that are winter hardy into this wheat, probably in about two or three weeks. Then we will harvest the wheat and the peas together next spring. So, uh, but I will have some soybeans planted also because I've got to see if there's something to this. So, because I don't know of a lot of people doing what I'm doing. So that's why we test something all the time. Right now, there's eight current tests going on the farm right now. And out of those tests, we'll learn the data, we'll get the information, and we'll decide if we want to continue with that next year or we're going to do something different. But it's those type of things that it takes to make this go to the next level. And we're getting decent on the soybean side of things. It's getting decent. The corn is the struggle. Corn, corn's hard. Corn does not like competition. When corn comes out of the ground, it wants to see something dead around it, like a, a, a or, or dark, like a, a tilled field. It does not want to see anything. Well, we are planting corn into green cover crops, so it's going to see something. So our corn struggles, it comes up, it's spindly, it looks weak. It takes a long time to grow through these cover crops and get a foothold and take off. So we don't have the corn, it's not even close to being perfected, but we're gaining each year. We're learning something new all the time. So I feel confident that, that we will get this figured out soon. But I have to say these things because I don't want people to think that this is totally figured out. It's not, but we're headed in the right direction. We can do this without tillage. We just have to tweak it some more. The beans you can definitely do without tillage. I think every bean in the United States should be grown into a cereal rye cover crop. You would eliminate the burn down potential of any chemistry at all because you've taken that out of the equation. Now all you're doing is is scouting your fields to see if you need to post spray. Some fields you may spray something, some fields you may spray nothing. So think about what's happening. You now have just greatly reduced the chemical load on your farm, which is now starting to build soil health, and you're reducing the money you pay on your inputs. And your yields are staying the same or getting better. So it's a win, like I said before, it's a win-win-win. I just don't understand why more people don't farm this way. But I think I have an idea of why. I could go into a room of farmers and I could have everybody, you know, here we go. This guy's, you know, we're doing it. This guy's got it figured out. He's got us energized. We're going to do this. Yeah. Well, I get in my truck and I drive home. There's next spring when, when they're supposed to be doing all these things that I talked about, there's nobody there to help them. That's part of the problem here. That support group is lacking, but I see changes coming in that. I see I see folks like Mitchell Hora with Continuum Ag. I see folks like uh, Dr. Liz Haney with, uh, with Regen. Um, I see a lot of understanding ag. I see those folks, Gabe and, and that group. I see a lot of people that are understanding 
There's a need for this. And it's a big need because, again, it goes back to what I said before. If the farmer does not have success, they will not come back. So that support group has to be in place to help this succeed. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you're talking about soybeans should be planted and dry, but you are also saying in that one field you planted soybeans into wheat. Right. It was even better. Yeah. So do you see that as, um, as a potential? I mean, like, Jason Locke is doing soybeans into wheat all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing a relay system. Right. Yeah, now those guys like Jason and Lauren, um, they are they are having a two or three rows of wheat and then a couple rows of beans and then and, and that's great. This is this actually this field actually was drilled also. So you see we could be onto something here too. Because we are on 20 inch row spacing corn and 20 inch row spacing soybeans. I use the same planter to do both, but now in this particular field, I drilled them with this with a 10 inch row spacing. Now, this leads up to my thought of a seven, the 70-30 rule. This is my rule. 70% of the weed suppression is coming from the cover crop that we plant. The other 30% is coming from the cash crop canopy. Okay, so obviously a 10-inch row is going to canopy sooner than a 20-inch than a row. So I think that is the greater of what's happening here. I think the 70-30 rule was in effect up until when those beans canopied and they held the weeds at bay then. So what we're going to do next year, I've actually upgraded that uh, John Deere air seeder to a new John Deere air seeder that's on seven and a half inch spacing. And we're going to wind up drilling more beans next spring to see if that really is what's going on here. I think it is. But I also think it's the synergy between those cash crops being grown together and letting the cash crops go to maturity. With the rye, we're always rolling it down. So I just think there is so much going on below our feet that we don't understand today that I think we just slowly kind of chip away at, at oh, wow, I see that's what's going on here. You know. There, there's so many people that we need to pay attention to. And one of those, you know, I'm going to mention three ladies that I pay a lot of attention to. Nicole Masters, Dr. Chris Nichols, and Dr. Christine Jones. These three women are amazing. And when you sit and listen to them and you you listen to what they're telling us about, about the biology that's going on. And then you implement these six principles of soil health to their fullest. And then you go out in your field. And I'm telling you, you don't need anything more than a spade. That's all you need is a spade. And you walk into your field and you see aggregate stability. You can see the worm holes, that they're, the tunnels they're drilling. You can see the tunnels that the roots have drilled. You see it, you live it, you feel it, you smell it. Everything is happening just like those three women. And there's a lot of other people I haven't mentioned. I don't want to offend anybody, but those three, it's there. It's there. Just you've got to be patient though and give it time to work. And I feel like I always think back 
of what was it like over a hundred years ago? What was happening? Well, west of here in the plains, they had fields and fields of lush forages growing and forbs growing, hundreds of species at a time. So when you think back to that's what was happening, why aren't we doing that today? And that's what I'm trying to do here. We're trying to put out 12 and 14 and 16-way cocktails. I mean, diversity is, is huge. But I look at diversity now as three different things. I look at I look at cover crop diversity. Okay, we could plant four things, but let's plant 12. That's diversity. That's one way to look at it. The second way to look at diversity is annuals and perennials. I think we get too hung up on just planting annuals only. Annuals and perennials need to be put together, but we have to be careful now because remember I told you I am no longer using chemistry. I can't use but just a few perennials because I have to be able to figure out how to manage them in my system. The only perennial that I can right now use is alfalfa. And alfalfa can be a detriment in itself. Um, it's very demanding of the soil. It takes a lot of nutrients out of the profile. So you have to be careful how you handle alfalfa. But I have two particular perennials that I cannot get rid of. And this is my fault. And this is how you learn. Uh, chicory and plantain. Wow. <laughs> they are relentless. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to probably have to incorporate some tillage mm -hmm. to combat these two problems. And, and I hate to say that, but sometimes you have to try everything at your, at your disposal. Yeah. Now, before I do that, though, I'm going to go back to one of the people I admire as Nicole Masters. I talked to Nicole about two weeks ago and I, I explained to Nicole the dilemma that I was in and Nicole said, don't, don't do that. I've got a, I've got a, a cure for you. No. I want you to harvest some of the chicory and I want you to put that in a container and I want you to let it sit for a year in a, in a, in like a garbage can. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to come back and we're going to spray the liquid that is formed from that degradation back onto those fields and that will create a fungus that will kill the chicory and I, I can imagine that something from itself will take care of so that's what i'm going to try first now the alfalfa i'm wondering if you could do the same thing so because see alfalfa has an allopathic effect against itself if you have like a a bare spot in an alfalfa field, but yet it's not totally bare. It's got maybe 20% plants growing. And if you come in and plant alfalfa with young, new alfalfa within that, it will kill that young alfalfa. So I'm wondering if you could harvest the plant, let it die down and, and degradate and rot and, and create this liquid that you spray back on alfalfa. I'm going to try it. I got it. I have to try it. But what we're doing with alfalfa now is we no-till our corn into standing alfalfa. And now I go back to my 70-30 rule. Remember, it was 70% of the weed suppression is from the cover crop. Well, in this case, the cover crop's the alfalfa. The 30% 
is from the cover crop canopy. So when the corn gets up in canopies, it suffocates and terminates that alfalfa, believe it or not. Growing corn that you can get to canopy, it'll crush the alfalfa and terminate it. In 20 inch rows. In 20 inch rows, that's correct. Now 30s is a stretch. Uh -huh. Now again, we're testing something all the time and guess what we've got testing? 10 inch row corn. Because I'm trying to see if we how much yield we lose versus the suppression of weeds. So we won't know these things until we try. Next year, we're going to put corn and beans, soybeans together in the John Deere air seeder, and we're going to drill them. We're going to harvest them together. That would be so interesting. That will be cool. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But there again, if you think about it, soybean is a legume. Soybean is going to fix nitrogen. If you are in a system that is mycorrhizal in nature, which I think ours is headed in that direction because we haven't tilled these fields in years, you're going to have that relationship and you're going to have that transfer of nutrients back and forth. The beans need potash and the corn needs nitrogen. Let's all talk and let's get along here and you're going to see this take place. I am convinced it will work. We'll get back to Rick Clark in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Rick Clark. So let's say you're not gonna be over here with me, but you wanna come part of the way on this curve and you're still gonna use a little chemistry, then by all means get perennials in your uh, cocktails to get diversity in that cocktail. Okay, so we've got diversity of annuals to perennials. Uh, we've got diversity as far as the number of species you're gonna put in, in the cocktail. And now I think the final leg of diversity is the cash crop commingling. Let's plant corn and soybeans together and figure out how to harvest them together and then separate them later. Let's plant peas and wheat. Let's plant fava beans and corn. Let's plant all of these things together to not only, uh, you know, we're working with that symbiotic relationship with Mother Nature, but we're increasing that diversity. And see, I think what's happened here is all of these years of tillage and all of the years of chemistry and synthetic fertilizer have turned certain microbes off. They've gone dormant because they don't have a job. But once you eliminate or take away those attributes, those microbes start to wake back up and you get that communication network going. That's why I strive so hard against tillage. If you ask me what my number one of the six is, it's tillage. Tillage has to stop because when you till the field, you're doing so many harmful things. You're releasing CO2 to the atmosphere. 
But the, the biggest thing, in my opinion, is you're destroying the microbial communities that are built within that biome. And if those communities have to constantly rebuild themselves, they're not doing anything toward building soil health. So you take tillage away, and now your microbe communities are coming alive, they're communicating, you need the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi to make that communication network work and thrive. Now you've got microbes that have been asleep for hundreds of years that are now back awake. And if you listen to Dr. Jones, she did a tremendous podcast series with Keith Burns at Green Cover. I think she did four of them. One of the ones that she did was all about nitrogen. And she is saying that if you get the right microbes to wake back up and you give them the correct diet of, a, of, of at least two species of the four categories, you don't need to apply any nitrogen. They will fix all of the nitrogen needs that we need. That's huge. And I think that could be the whole game changer right there. But there's going to be a lot of pushback. I mean, you think about who's going to, Who's going to stand up and say, you're not going to reduce the chemicals to zero and you're not going to reduce fertilizer to zero. There's a lot of people that, that depend on those and they're going to push pretty hard. So this is going to be an uphill battle all the way. So now with that in mind, you have to put things in perspective. Is it realistic that every acre in the world would have a cover crop on it? No. That's not realistic. So what is realistic? I think, I think realistic would be 15 to 20%. If you could get 15 to 20% of the acres around the world to implement some part of these practices, you would see huge change in everything. And I am convinced that if they can be taught properly, those farmers that would try these new practices, if they could be taught properly and have success that first time, their intentions may be to do this on a third of their farm, but over the, over time, it'll wind up being on all of the farm. So then it, it just, it just happens. So, so don't go for the hundred percent, go after 20% and then step back and watch the 20 become 25 and the 25 becomes 30% and so on and so on and so on you know it's i'm the type of person that if you push me i'm going to push back you know or if you want to motivate me to do something you tell me that i can't do it okay fine you can't plant corn in the cereal life i'm going to show you how you can and that's what we did so you have to be able to take that risk but you can't not jeopardize the livelihood of the farm you're doing this on small acres you know, if you're going to plant a thousand acres of corn, try some radical experiment on 50 so that if it fails, it's not going to destroy your farm. So, you know, again, we, we have to keep things in perspective. And the other thing too, Julia, is you have to constantly be looking for validations because again, there's not a lot of people to talk to. So, you know, I look for validations all the time. We have not applied any ag lime to our fields in eight years now. And our pH is 6.8 and rising. That's a validation that what we're doing is correct. 
So the reason why you need lime is because your pH is out of balance. Well, your pH gets out of balance when you add the synthetic fertilizers and chemistry because those are salts and acids that are affecting the pH. Then you've got, then you need to bring lime in to get it all back in balance. Well, when you take those attributes away, the farm starts to head toward balance. So as I always talk about balance. There's many kinds of balance. One of those forms of balance that I love to talk about is predator to prey. And you're only gonna find this stuff out on a Rick Haney soil health test. That's the only testing we do now. We no longer do the old 70 year old methods that, that is looking at dead soil. We're doing the Haney test that looks at live soil. He has a plethora of information in that test. And one of the parts of that test is he talks about relationships. One of those relationships is predator to prey. I get asked all the time, how can you plant non-GMO corn without insecticide? Well, it's all about balance. Whatever species preys on corn rootworm is in balance in our farm because we've taken away the salts and the acids that kill the beneficial species. So, you know, people talk about, um, we need to spray an insecticide because we have an army worm invasion. We gotta go kill those army worms. Well, that's great. You're gonna target that army worm, but you're also gonna take out a thousand beneficials. So you've now gone backwards in building soil health and heading toward balance. I won't do it. The army worms will come, they will wipe out your crop, and you have to understand, you have to be a student of the game that you're in. That, that student is, you have to understand that the corn's growing point is not out of the ground until it's at V5. So if any corn is eaten off at V4 or shorter, or less of a maturity zone, it's gonna grow back. So I'm the type that will sacrifice yield every single day to maintain soil health. I do it all the time. Am I sacrificing yield by letting those army worms wipe out that corn? Yes, I am. But when you look at the unintended consequences of wiping out a thousand beneficials, I've now lost my soil health. So now I, I've, got to, I've lost everything. I've lost that ability that was to take the fertilizers out, take the chemistry out. I've lost all that. So I cannot stray from that. So when you head toward balance, you no longer need those attributes to grow, to, to get that cash crop to grow. The other kind of balance that I talk about is bacterial to fungal. When we started down this journey, our farm was a bacterial-based farm. Now, we need bacteria in the profile, don't get me wrong, but we were out of balance. So when we started doing the Haney test, and he again will tell you in this test what your relationship between bacterial and fungal is, we started applying the six principles of soil health, and we shifted to a, a fungal-based farm, which is exactly where I want to be, because you need those uh, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi growing and thriving because they're the network of the, the backbone network of the microbial biome. There is not going to be any transaction of nutrients or minerals take place 
unless it goes through that our muscular mycorrhizal fungi. Again, I'm going to say it again, but back to the tillage. We've got to stop tillage and stop destroying those communities and step back and watch your fields change right in front of you. I've seen it. I've seen it in every field. They all change for the better. So the weeds are the problem right now. That's the problem. And I'm going to tell you that progression is real. And what I mean by that is this. If you take a field out of production, what's the first thing that happens? Broadleaf weeds come in. Then you get a couple years of broadleaf weeds. Then you get grass. You get two or three years of grasses. Then you get shrubs and then you get trees if you let it go all the way. Now, we're not getting the, tr the shrubs and the trees because we're combining the fields. We continually mow that stuff off. But there is a progression from broad leaves to grass. But now here's what I think is going on. Cereal rye is such a tremendous sequester of nutrients that I think cereal rye is pulling those nutrients that are needed for cor a corn crop or a the weed that's coming, okay? We hear so many times that you can't raise corn into cereal rye. I don't buy that. And, and people wanna say that there's an allopathic effect. I don't buy that either. I think what's happening is the cereal rye is sequestering the necessary and needed nutrients for that corn plant at its young growth stage that those, those nutrients aren't available in enough of a supply. And it's the same theory for the weeds. So all of those early germinating broadleaf weeds, there's the, the cereal rye is crushing them because it's sequestered the nutrient load that they need and there's the rye starting to grow and create a shading effect and you wipe those broadleaves out. They're gone. Okay, so now let's continue this down, down a little further. Okay, so now you've terminated the rye. And I know from all the testing that we've done on this farm, we take tests every year on cereal rye. We now take a sample of rye every Monday and we send it to the lab because I wanna see what this rye is doing and how much is it sequestering? When is it peaking in the season? And, and how much is it releasing at the end of the season? So when you see the power of the sequestration of cereal rye, you start to think like I'm talking about. So now if you want to plant corn into cereal rye, you need to move your nitrogen program further forward to offset what the cereal rye has sequestered nutrient wise. So now, the same thing is happening with the weeds. We're, we're, we're buckling the weeds at their knees. The broad leaves are pretty much gone. But now what's happening is, now we're to my 70-30 rule. So that cereal rye has suppressed those weeds for 70% of what it needs to be done. If you haven't reached canopy though, now that cereal rye is releasing those nutrients back out. Guess what? Just in time for when grass comes on. Foxtail is a late emerging weed in the season. We are now dumping all of those nutrients for the foxtail and here it comes. And it comes. If you don't have that good suppression of the, of the, of the biomass from the cover crop and in cash crop canopy, 
you're going to have foxtail. And we've got foxtail in certain fields. And I can always attribute it back to what I'm just describing. So that's why, again, it is so critical to treat your cover crop as important as your cash crop and get your cover crop planted in a timely fashion. I don't care what you have to do. You know, the best way to get a cover crop planted in time is to raise a cereal grain because they're harvested in early summer and do not double crop soybeans behind them. Put out a massive warm season cocktail and start to get the soil health and the biology working. Then come behind that with the, the package that you want for next year's cash crop. So now at least those acres are set up for success for next year. That's important. So one thing I wanted to ask, so cereal rye, corn to cereal rye, yeah. there are people who are doing that, but they put on nitrogen in yep. the spring, but you're not doing that. Yeah, okay, great question. So if, if we were not an organic farm and we still used synthetic nitrogen, every acre of corn would be, would be planted in the cereal rye at some amount. Okay, our soybeans now, we're planting between 125 and 140 pounds of cereal rye ahead of our soybeans. For corn, we're planting between 40 and 60, depending on the field, the history of the field, what time of the year is it, and when are we doing this? And I'm still doing this currently today because we're also planting legumes with that cereal rye. Now the cereal rye is at a reduced rate. So yes, it is probably gonna sequester some of the available nutrients, but I need that cereal rye to help get me the biomass that we need to suppress the weeds. So my suggestion is, if you are a farmer that is still using synthetic fertilizer, I would be upping that cereal rye rate to 80 pounds. If you're still using fertilizer, if you're not using fertilizer, but let's say you, you have the ability to get to organic, like chicken litter, cow manure, then I would still be at that higher rate of rye because you still need that rye to suppress the weed, but that manure, that organic source you're bringing is gonna offset what the rye has done and feed that corn crop. If you don't have any of that at your availability, you have to be careful how much how much rye you put with your corn if your only nitrogen source is a legume that you planted. I would not go over 60 pounds. So again, we have to be careful here because a lot of people are gonna hear what I'm saying, but they don't all live in my region. So we've gotta be careful. You've got to understand that the folks listening in Northern Minnesota, this is a different approach than the folks listening in Alabama. So we have to be careful what we say, we have to understand. And you know, that's why I think the sixth leg of the soil health principle is so critical. It's context. You have to get the context right and, and understand where you live in the world and what you can and can't do. Now, all of these principles work around the world. They all do, no matter where you are, maybe not Antarctica, but anywhere else around the world where you grow crops, these principles work. It's just different prescriptions for different regions and different climates. Some climates you can use different species than we can use here. 
So um, we have to be very careful that that we still understand that there's there's certain rules we have to follow depending on what region of the world you live in. Now, the last thing I want to say is we have to understand that we have to be realistic about our yield goals here. Okay. I'm going to tell you that lead in the years leading up to organic. So before we went organic, we were still using some chemistry and some uh, fertility. The ROI that we were getting on the farm was the best it's ever been in those years. Okay. We then decided to go all the way and go no-till. I'll be, or I mean, organic. I'm going to be honest with you. We've had a reduction in yield. So we were up here somewhere, we've dropped down 15%, and now we're here. Okay, so let's think about this for a moment. What is a realistic, or what is a realistic yield goal in the system that we're in now? We've taken everything away. It's 35 to 40 bushel beans, and it's 130 to 140 bushel corn. Well, Rick, those, those numbers are ridiculously low. Well, they might be, but we're also now selling our product for much higher prices. So then when you do the math back, there's nothing to subtract for inputs except a little bit of fuel, a little bit of machinery, and the seed you gotta buy. So we're, we're starting from a pretty high number and we're not subtracting hardly anything off. We are left with a very nice return on investment. Right. So with that being said, you have to understand that yes, you might drive by one of Rick's fields and it might look like a train wreck and it might be, and, but I will probably have a reason why it is like that and we will try not to have that happen again next year. Remember, it's not a failure. It's an outcome we didn't expect, but if those beans only yield 30, I'm currently selling them for $30. So I've now grossed $900 an acre and I've got $300 of expense. So you can do the math. So, but we have to understand that's part of the change. It's not only the change of the farming style, it's the whole change of the money style. The function of money here because we're no longer trying to maximize our yield because our commodity prices have been depressed. We need every bushel we can get. It's no, it's about building soil health, building human health, and then accepting that 30 bushel beans are okay. Mm -hmm. Right. But you also will have that one field I told you about earlier that I've never seen yield these numbers before my whole lifetime. You now average that with that 30 bushel field and things are okay. So we have to stop looking at single snapshots in time, and we have to stop looking at single fields in time. Mm -hmm. It's a systematic approach, and take it as an average across the whole system. Let's move into the health. So I'm gonna tell you right now that you don't understand how important health is until you don't have it. Mm -hmm. I had a health problem, okay? I was hypocritical to myself. I spent my, and I still do today, I spend all of my time thinking about how do I increase soil health? 
And I totally forgot about my own health, my eating habits, what I eat, when I ate, what did I eat, the lack of exercise, all of these things. I said, oh, I can do it tomorrow. It'll be okay tomorrow. Well, they wound up biting me. So as a result of that, my past diet has made me type 2 diabetic. So my pancreas now is not, it is not totally shut down, but it can no longer supply enough insulin to offset the diet that I had. When I finally decided to get my blood check, my sugar check, it was 309. And you need to be below 100. My A1C was 11.8, need to be below 5.5. So these are numbers that could have been catastrophic to me. If I hadn't have taken heed, I might not be here today. So, but I want you to also understand though, that in just a short amount of time of changing my diet and talking to experts, see this all goes to everything I'm talking about. Okay, I've been eating wrong. So I gotta go find an expert to teach me how to eat. The, I've been farming wrong. I need to find somebody to help me show me how to farm more correct. It's the same thing. Everything we're talking about here. So you go and you find that person to, and within two weeks of changing my diet, I could see a, a result. And I started losing weight. I had more energy. I felt better. I've, I've dropped 15 pounds. And everything is better now. So I know I've said this a lot, but if you truly want to get human health, you have to start with getting soil health. So everything that we do here now, as far as food is concerned, is, is organic or some type of system that we are familiar with that all of these attributes, these, these, these crutches, whatever you want to call these synthetic fertilizers and synthetic chemistry is gone. It's out of the picture. It's out of the system. The plants are not being grown in that manner. Those are the foods that we're eating. So now what we're going to start doing here, and I've, I've got so many things I want to do. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get them all done, but we have to now start growing some of our own food. Okay. We're going to start an, uh, an online uh, retail meat business. It's all going to be natural beef raised on, in our system. The animals have been rotationally grazed across our system. I'm not going to market them as grass fed. I'm going to market them as natural beef. We're going to start, um, we're going to start raising some ancient grains. We're going to start milling our own grain. We're going to start making flour. We're going to start doing all of these things. And this is what it all means, Julia. You have to take the soil health, then turn that into the food that's higher in nutrient density, and then you start to get human health. Now, I've already changed my diet, and I've already started more exercising, and I'm happy to say that I'm a type 2 diabetic with zero medication. Zero. No insulin, no drugs, no pills, nothing. This can be done. It's just like I tell everyone the way we're farming. You can do this, but you have to change. 
Change is hard. Hey, I can eat ice cream with the best of them, but you have to take that out of your diet now. I waited too long. So I hope there's young folks listening here. Please go to the doctor, get your blood checked, draw a baseline. I always talk about baseline. You have to baseline your farm. If you, How do you know where you're going unless you know where you've been? So baseline, your, get your data, baseline, hey, we're doing this, this, and this on this farm. It's costing us, it's costing us this amount of money to farm. Now we're gonna try it Rick's way. Yeah, the yield may have dropped five bushel, but look at our ROI. Our ROI is 20% better than it was before. So who cares about the yield? So all of these things culminate into everything I've been talking about. Human health starts with soil health. You have to be in a symbiotic relationship with Mother Nature. And then everything falls in place. Thanks to Rick Clark for this discussion about how soil health impacts human health. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.